0: Turn with me, if you will, to, uh, to Numbers chapter 14. This is after Israel disobeys God, rebels against God at the edge of the promised land. They've already come through the, the wilderness as far as God intended for them to go. They wind up spending another 40 years out there, but that was not according to the will of God. That was according to the choice of the people. And, uh, and when they get there, they, um, uh, they rebel against God by bringing up an evil report, the Scripture says. Literally, what they did is they said, we can't do what God said we can do. You know, you could stay here forever, to be perfectly honest with you, because that is something that people don't seem to ever get a hold of. Most people don't anyway. And that is when God says you can do something or he says something is yours and you say that it's not, that's the greatest sin there is. It may not cost you heaven. I mean, if you take that position on Jesus, it will. But there are a lot of people that make Jesus or accept Jesus as Savior, but they never make Jesus the Lord of their lives. And as a result, they take the word of God as kind of a buffet. They take the part that they like and leave the part that they don't like and let uh, theologians explain away certain aspects or certain parts of the things that they don't understand or, or whatever the case might be. But the bottom line is this. If the Bible says something is yours and you say that it's not, that's the sin of unbelief. And it is a sin. That's the sin that cost Israel the promised land. God said and had told them, we went through this uh, last Sunday morning. If you weren't with us, you might want to get the, uh, uh, the tape or the, download it from uh, the website or whatever you want to do, however you listen to things. Um, but we went through, there were four different times where God told Israel, sometimes through Moses and sometimes directly, that the promised land was the lands of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Hivites, uh, and whoever else. I'm leaving some other people out of the, out of the list. But God told them specifically that that was the promised land that he was taking them to. And then in Numbers chapter 13, when they get to the promised land, they say, well, all these people are there. Well, duh. God's told them that all along. And so they, they bring up the ten spies, uh, the twelve spies winning, and ten spies come back with an evil report, and they say, well, we can't do it. The people are stronger than we are, and even though God says he's on our side, and even though God is... Um, destroyed the egyptian army the strongest army on the face of the earth and pharaoh and, and his chariots and so forth and even though god has done all these miracles for us and the the things that we've seen the, over the last two years about a two two and a half year period between the exodus the parting of the red sea and uh and coming to the edge of the promised land all those things that we've seen over the last couple of years that doesn't matter because to us the only thing that counts is how strong the people are and how large the walls are around the cities and so we can't do it so god says okay numbers chapter 14 He spoke to them. Well, here, I'm telling you to go there, and I didn't go there. Hold on. Numbers chapter 14. God says to them, says to Israel, beginning in verse 21, he said, But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled Oh, I'm sorry, back up to verse 11. Let me put verse 11 in there and then we'll start reading in verse 21. The Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere or before they believe me? Please notice that phrase. How long will it be before they believe me? For all the signs which I have shown unto them. Now please notice what God is saying. Verse 11 is, is uh, confirmed a number of different places, a number of different ways. But it's so clear in the way that God is saying this when the people rebel against God. They bring up an evil report of unbelief. They say, we can't take the promised land. No matter what God's done, no matter who God is, no matter what God said, we can't take the promised land. God says, how long will it be before they believe me? For all the signs, the miracles that I've shown unto them. Please notice, miracles are designed for you to believe God. Not the other way around. Now, believing God will bring miracles. But miracles, according to what God said, miracles were designed for the children of Israel to believe his word. Believe God means to believe what he says, right? So he says, how long is it going to be before these people believe me? Everything about what God did, all the power that he showed, all the plagues in Egypt, all the parting of the Red Sea, all the miracle uh, wilderness miracles, all those things that took place were designed for one and only one thing, and that was for the people to believe God. And that's what they refused to do when they got to the promised land. They said, no, we can't do it. Yeah, but God said you could. Caleb and Joshua said, God is on our side. We can take the land. They said, no, 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 can't do it. They refused to believe. Now skip with me over to verse 21. We'll pick up there again where we started a minute ago. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see, the, see it. Please notice that failing to believe God cost them the promised land. What is the promised land a type of? It's not a type of salvation. The Bible says that the parting of the Red Sea, the crossing over the Red Sea was the, the, the equivalent the people being baptized under Moses is what Paul called it in First Corinthians chapter 10. He said that's a type of salvation. The promised land is a type of the blessings of the believer. See there was no fight to fight when it came to the parting of the Red Sea. There was no battle to fight. There was no enemy to defeat. God did it all. Just like Jesus has done it all for us in the work of the cross. But the blessings that belong to the believer, that's a different thing. That's where you have to fight the good fight of faith. Have you ever noticed there is no good fight of faith to get saved? It's a choice, simple choice. That may take some people a long time to come to that choice. They may struggle with themselves and they may argue about whether or not they believe or whether or not it's true or what it's going to cost them or whatever the case might be. But that's their own issue. That's not a fight for salvation itself that's a struggle of the will the individual's will but once the person makes up his mind there's nothing the devil can do to stop it there's no fight isn't that true that's not true where the blessings of god are concerned for the believer. That's not true where the blessings of healing are concerned, the blessings of provision are concerned. That's not true where any of the things that Jesus purchased for us on the cross that we're supposed to take part of and partake of here on the earth, possess, if you will, here on the earth, just like they were intended, Israel was intended to possess the promised land. That's not the way it works for us. It's not a matter of just making up your mind. You make up your mind and then you enter into the fight. And that's the good fight of faith that Paul talks about fighting. Isn't that true? Unbelief will cost you your blessings. All the things that Jesus has purchased for you. Now there's another thing that you need to understand about blessings. The inheritance that belongs to us. The Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ. Well that must mean something belongs to us. Otherwise what's the point of being an heir? The Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ. What does that mean? Well if you are the heir of a wealthy man. Whatever he leaves to you belongs to you as soon as he dies. You don't have to fight for it you don't even have to know what it is it belongs to you but sometimes taking possession of that of that uh, inheritance is a different issue you may have other family members that don't like what you got you may have a legal battle regarding the inheritance you may have some family matters emotional things to deal with So there may be some struggles along with it, but it belongs to you as soon as the person that willed it to you dies. That's the way our inheritance is in Christ. It belonged to you as soon as Jesus was raised from the dead. Now what you take advantage of, what you partake of, depends on what you know and what you're willing to stand to have. Stand in faith to receive. But it belongs to you. That's what the promised land represents. That's what the land of Canaan represents in the Old Testament type that we're reading about here. And so the people, the congregation sided in with the ten spies and they said, no, we can't do it. God says there will be some exceptions. Verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him. Please notice how he says that. He had another spirit with him. What was the difference in Caleb and Joshua and the rest of the congregation? They said we could do it. That's it. They saw the same giants. They saw the same walls with the the cities with the walls around them. They saw the same armies that the people of the land had. They saw everything the same as the children of Israel did that sided in with the ten spies. Saw everything exactly the same. They just said, we can do it because God's on our side. Did they feel stronger than the ten? Did Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that had a good report and believed God, did they feel stronger than the ten spies that had an evil report? You think so? The sure doesn't say so. They probably looked at the walls around the city and thought the same thing as the others. Man, those are big. But God's on our side. They may have even looked at it and said, man, if God wasn't on our side, we'd be toast. Our goose would be cooked in this thing. But God's on our side. They saw everything exactly the same. The difference was they spoke what they believed rather than what they saw. They said, we can do it because God's on our side. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with, me, uh, with him and has followed me fully by believing and speaking. That's how you follow God fully. You believe his word and speak it. He had another spirit with him and has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land where he went and his seed shall possess it. Skip around with me, verse uh, 27, or verse 26. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? The only thing they've done is, is disagreed with what God said. He's not talking about evil because of the, the golden calf and all the stuff that was surrounding that. He's not talking about evil with anything else except this situation. He said, How long shall I deal or uh, bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which murmur against me. Verse 28. Say unto them, as truly as I live. In other words, here's an eternal law. God lives forever. Here's an eternal law. That means it still works today. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in mine ears, so will I do unto you. Now notice several things about this, folks. Notice what you speak in the ears of God is what you'll have. That's the law of God. It's the law of God then. It was actually the law of God before they knew it, before God even says it here in Numbers chapter 14. It's the law of God now. It will always be the law of God. It's an eternal law. It doesn't even end when the earth, the new earth, new heaven and the new earth are made. This is the law of God. It's an eternal law, everlasting law. As you have spoken in my ear, so will I do unto you. Everybody in this story gets exactly what they said. Now notice the connection with that. He said in verse 20. The whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Why? Because he'll deal with us according to what we say. Notice that connection is there too. Notice the promised land is taken by those who speak. Victory over the promised land. Doesn't mean there's not a fight. Doesn't mean there's not enemies to stand against. But everybody gets what they say. That is the principle. The unchanging Everlasting, eternal law of God its the principle of faith. You get what you say. Now, the whole purpose for this, the whole purpose for the miracles, according to what God said, is so the people would speak, believe, and therefore speak in agreement with what God's already told them. And they refused. They refused. Another thing that I want you to make a note of is in... uh, Exodus chapter 13, when the children of Israel first came out of Egypt, it says that uh, in chapter 13 of Exodus, verses 17 and 18, let me read this to you. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had led the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war. And they returned to Egypt, but God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of of Egypt, So the miracles were for two things. Number one. So that the people. To enable the people to believe God. And take him at his word. And secondly to prepare them for war. Because there are going to be battles to fight. When they get to the promised land. This two year span. Between the parting of the Red Sea. And the. Or two and a half years. Two years and a few months anyway. This uh, period of time. Between the parting of the Red Sea. And the, uh, the coming to the promised land. The purpose for coming to the promised land. Is to defeat the promised land enemies or the inhabitants and take possession of it but God had to prepare them for war he prepared them for war by showing them who he was by showing them his power by showing them his provision showing them that he was trustworthy he could be taken at his word that's what all this was for so that they would believe him and be ready to fight they get to the promised land they don't believe him and they're not ready to fight Now we talked about some of the um, uh, the um, wilderness miracles the first one was the, the angel of god the pillar of cloud and fire guarded the multitude second one was the healing of the bitter waters at Marah. this is exodus 15 the third one was manna rains from heaven and quails are sent to provide meat in exodus 16 the fourth one was the water coming from the rock where moses hits the rock in exodus chapter 17 we talked about uh, how those uh, four miracles were all about provisions and the the number of people there and that God had to provide for, the, the 2 to 3 million people that, were, that came out of Egypt uh, during the time of the Exodus, uh, the provision that was necessary for them was just staggering. The amount of provision, the amount of food, the amount of water that these people would need for themselves and their livestock, and even the campgrounds, the, the places that they would need to, for that many people to, uh, to inhabit is just mind-boggling when you, when you put it on paper and, and, uh, and look at it. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 17. We'll start with the next set of miracles of the the rest of the wilderness miracles this morning. Exodus chapter 17, first part of the chapter talks about the water coming from the rock. The next miracle is is, um, uh, Israel and Amalek, how God defeats the the armies of Amalek. In verse 8 it says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, choose out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the rock with the rod of God in my hand. Now let me, uh, let me fast forward a little bit to let you know who Amalek is. Uh, the Amalekites were uh, uh, the first um, people we have record of that were terrorists. Because in Deuteronomy, when Moses is making his final address to the people, Deuteronomy chapter 25 Moses speaks this about them. This is verses, uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Moses said this. He said, Remember what Amalek did unto thee. This is 40 years later, by the way, when he makes this comment. Remember what Amalek did unto thee, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee. That means he attacked from the rear. Even all that were feeble behind thee when thou were faint and weary. And he feared not God therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God has given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven thou shalt not forget it. In other words he said there'll be no trace of Amalek so make sure you remember what God did. The, the King James is, is a little uh, difficult there, but that's what it means. It means God is going to do away with those that attacked you from the rear. They didn't come out like an army with integrity and, and fought against you. They attacked from the rear where the people that were the weakest and, and the, the most feeble and the older folks and stuff like that, they terrorized you from, uh, by making rear attacks. Now, folks, if God's character hasn't changed, then the Bible says God never changes. If God's character and his nature has never changed, this is what God does to terrorists. So don't worry about Islamic Jihad. Don't worry about the advance of it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they may advance and and, and unless we get people with some backbone like the king of Jordan. You know, who knows what's going to happen with the rest of the world, at least for the next several years. But don't be concerned about that. Don't worry about what's happening. It's terrible and we need to pray and we need to take whatever action is appropriate and stuff like that. But don't let it rock your world because there's coming a time where God's going to wipe out terrorists. I believe it's at the, the first day of the of the tribulation period where God in one twenty four hour period destroys all of Israel's enemies that come down against them. But that's just me. It could be at a different time. It could be in a different way. But that's, that's what I think. But any, no matter how it happens, if God hasn't changed... Here's what God says about terrorists. And Moses points out that this seems to be the reason why God takes this position against them because they didn't come out and fight like men. They terrorized the children of Israel from behind. So God said, I'll wipe out all trace of them. Folks, there's coming a day where Islam will be nothing more than a memory. It's true. All this idea that so many people, this politically correct idea that so many people have that there are many ways to God, Islam ain't one of them. (laughs) Well, let me let me rephrase that. Islam is a way to God, but not how they think. (laughs) It's a way to stand before God in judgment. So that's what's coming. And that's what Moses says about Amalek. Now, this is who these people are. So Moses said, we'll read verse 9 again. Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands... Amalek prevailed and it tells about how Moses got tired and so they, uh, Aaron and her propped up, uh, put it, set Moses down on a rock and propped up his hands so that they would win the battle. But I want you to see something about this. What in the world does Moses' hands up or down have anything to do, how in the world could it have anything to do with victory or defeat in a battle? You've got to recognize the supernatural even miraculous aspect of this. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is that this seems to be Moses' idea. Look at how Moses changes throughout all this. Not only focus on the miracles and see what God has done and the power of God and so forth, but look at how Moses changes throughout this, this progression. Moses stood before the Red Sea and said to the people, Don't worry, God will deliver you. And he turns around and says, God, what are we going to do? And God rebukes him. God gets upset with him. He said, Why criest thou unto me? You do something. Now, up until that point, Moses has been in charge of the, um, uh, the delivery, the presentation, if you will, of the ten plagues in Egypt, really nine plagues and the death of the firstborn, the judgment against the Egypt's gods. But God is standing before, or Moses is standing before God at the Red Sea, and God says, this is your job. You do something about this. Now, when he gets to Amalek, some whatever it might be, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half later, if that long now instead of moses saying to god how are we going to defeat this enemy moses just simply says i'll go up on top of the hill he's not even the one that says when i hold my hands up we'll win but somehow or another maybe it's through trial and error maybe it's through moses just showing himself before the people i don't know what it is but it's moses action it's moses initiation and when moses hands are up they win Now, what does this signify for us? I mean, all these things are types and shadows. What does this mean for us? Notice it's not just a matter of Moses having the rod in his hand. It's presenting it. And the rod represents the name of Jesus for you and me. It's not a matter of what name you have. The name that you have been given because you're a child of God is the most powerful name in the universe. But you've got to do something with it. You've got to utilize it. Moses had to hold it forth. He had to make it prominent before the people in order for it to work. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and to the Greek second. Gentile second. To everyone that believes. What does believing mean? Believing means putting it out front you got so many Christians that are walking around in the earth with the power of God at their disposal because they are children of God. And they're walking around in defeat saying, I don't know why God's letting this happen to me because you won't stick the rod up. You won't stand up boldly and say, I'm one that you can count on being on God's side. Folks, that's what it takes. And it's going to take more of that in the last days. You're not going to be able to be a covert Christian and walk in victory. You're going to have to risk being called a fanatic. You're going to have to risk being called one of those tongue-talking people, one of those crazy Christians. And I would submit to you folks that it's worth being called or thought of in any and every way that the world can, can come up with to walk in victory because the world's not going to get any better. I don't care who's elected next. Have you ever noticed how we keep going from year to year, every two years, every four years? The next election will do it. Folks, there's only one thing that's going to do it, and that's the word of God. And it's not going to do it for the nation. It's going to do it for the individuals that stand strong upon it. Are you with me? Oh, Pastor Mike, have you given up on America? No, I've just given up on the government of it. I still believe in the people. But don't you think somebody could turn it around? Well, the Bible says that not many chosen are from the wise elite groups. The Bible talks about the work of God being done to common people. And that usually doesn't fit world leaders and, and so forth. So no, I'm I'm not looking for the government to do anything. But oh, I'm looking for God to do some big things through his people. I'm looking for the church to be the force that that. Uh, sets the direction for the world, not the government. Okay, now turn with me over to Exodus chapter 34. Between, um, uh, well, about chapter 25, somewhere around there, it talks about the Ten Commandments. And you remember how the children of Israel rebelled against God while Moses was up on the mountain, and they started having this wild party and brought their golden earrings and bracelets and stuff like that, and, and Aaron made a golden calf. When he's called up to task about it from Moses, Aaron said, well, all the people just threw their gold into the fire and his golden cap appeared. Son of a gun, you know, it just showed up. So anyway, Moses deals with that and he, he grinds it into powder and puts it in the water and makes everybody drink it. Which is a genius way of telling them, here's what it's worth. But when Moses goes back up into the mountain to get the second... Uh, tables of stone he breaks the first one on the way down I want you to notice in uh, chapter 33 Moses asked to see God's glory and then in chapter 34 it tells that uh, that God passed by before him notice in verse 10 what God says to Moses after the children of Israel have sinned after the children of Israel have made a golden calf after they've rebelled and done what you and I would think you know it can't get any worse than this but it will Notice what God says, and God knows this all along. God's not surprised by what happens in Numbers 13. He's not surprised by the people worshiping the golden calf. None of this takes him by surprise, even if it takes Moses by surprise. And so notice what God said in verse 10 of chapter 34. God said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all the people I will do marvels. This is the word miracles. Before all the people I will do miracles. Such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. For it is a terrible, literally awesome thing that I will do with thee. Please notice that God doesn't stop his willingness to do miracles because the people mess up. Now again, remember what the miracles are for. Miracles are for two things. Number one, that you'll believe God and his word and secondly, so you'll be prepared for war. You and I have to be prepared for battle too. Now, our war is not like their war. We don't fight against the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and whoever else. We fight the good fight of faith. But we do have an enemy. And he's relentless in his in his attacks. We found that to be true, haven't we? And God doesn't give up on miracles. He doesn't give up on showing his power. He doesn't give up in talking to his servants, your sons. I, I would make the case that sons have a greater place in relationship with God than servants do. But God doesn't give up even on His servants because they mess up. He's still willing to show miracles and do awesome things among them so that everybody else sees. Now why would God care about doing that for Israel so that their enemies, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Hittites, and whoever else, Why would he care to show them what awesome things he'll do for Israel and not want to show the world what awesome things he'll do for the church? See, so many times the devil will sit on your shoulder and say, yeah, but all that Old Testament stuff, those miracles and stuff, that was just for Israel. Yeah, servants. You're telling me that God will do more for his servants than he'll do for his sons? I don't believe it. Moses and the miracle workers of the Old Testament had nothing in comparison to what you have. They had an outward experience, an external experience with God. You've got the Spirit of God living on the inside of you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The miracle worker is in you. In you. Not shows up to help you from time to time. He's in you. And if we can learn from some of the Old Testament miracles. What they were designed for. What they were intended to produce in the people. And operate according to the way that God intended. We can get the same miracles for us. So God said I'll make a covenant. He's not talking about a new covenant. He's talking about establishing the covenant that he already had with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'll establish it in miracles. I'll do awesome things with you. Turn with me over to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 tells us another miracle event. This is before they get to the edge of the promised land. And this is one that even baffles Moses. Numbers chapter 11. Let's start in verse 13. The children of Israel murmuring against Moses. Big surprise there. They're complaining because all they have is this manna to eat. So Moses is complaining to the Lord, and Moses says in verse 13, he said, where should, I give flesh to the, uh, where should I have flesh to give unto all these people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because it's too heavy for me. And if you deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of thy hand, if I have found favor in your sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Now when you get to where you're praying that, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, just kill me so I don't have to deal with these people. You know you've got a a, a scraggly bunch of folks when you're saying I'd rather die so that I don't have to deal with these people. And the Lord said unto Moses, gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom thou knowest to be elders of the people. And bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation that there they may stand with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there and I will take up the spirit which is upon thee and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden and they shall of the people with thee and thou shalt not bear it alone. And say unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow and you shall eat flesh. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh and you shall eat. Notice what they're saying. We were better off as slaves than out here trusting God. Now how many, you, I know this sounds um, shocking to us in in one sense I guess but how many times have you had the devil say you didn't have it this bad before you started trusting God I've had people come up and tell me that all the time pastor Mike I never had this kind of trouble before but when I started trusting God it seemed like all hell broke loose well so what do you want you want to go back to when you didn't have anything didn't know anything that's what they're saying oh if only we could go back to when we were slaves It's amazing to me how when the devil gets in people's thinking, what goals they set for themselves. Oh, if only we could be slaves. Well, you didn't like it when you were slaves. What makes you think you'd like it to go back? Verse 19. Here's God speaking. He said, you shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month. He's saying, I'll give you a month's worth of quail even a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils. And it be loathsome unto you, because you have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? And Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen, and thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they will eat a whole month. Moses is saying, You know how many people we've got, Lord? Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? In other words, he's saying, where in the world are you going to get that kind of meat? How how in the world can you come up with that much meat? Notice Moses is talking like this. And the Lord said unto Moses, is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and spake unto him, and took of the Spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto them, the 70 elders. And it came to pass, that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp, the name of the one was Eldad, and the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, that they were of them that were written, but went not out uh, unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of the young men answered and said, My Lord, Moses, forbid them. In other words, we've got to keep you special. We can't have everybody prophesy. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now keep that in mind. That's Moses' attitude. I wish everybody knew God and was walking with God and talking with God like I am. That'd be fine with me. I'm not trying to be special. And Moses got him into the camp, got him into the camp, and he and the elders of Israel. Verse 31, And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side. Round about the camp as it were two cubits high. Two cubits is is about three feet high about two, three feet high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered the quails. And he that gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them around about, or all abroad for themselves round about the camp. While their flesh was yet between the teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a great plague. Folks, unbelief never works even when you get what you want. So it tells us that he brought up enough quail for these people to have for a month. Can you imagine three feet high? That'd be about this high. Three feet high for a day's walk in every direction. Now, where does God get that many birds? I mean, we can just look at the at the end result and say, "Wow, wasn't that a big deal?" But where did these things come from? The wind by the sea, folks. You look at any map; there is nothing that exists between them and the sea that would be any kind of haven for birds of that number? Where did they come from? Nobody's got an answer for it. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to try to answer or try to figure it out. The the reality is there is no explanation for how God could come up with this many birds. But he came up with so many that the people were choked on birds. By the time this month is up, they are saying... Get these birds away from us. And not only did God bring the birds, He had them just lay there for the people to gather them up. They're not having to chase birds. These birds come, fall, and they're just ready to be picked up. And we worry about God being able to give us an extra couple of hundred dollars. Oh but Lord, where's it going to come from? Does it matter? This one, I think the important part about this is that this is a real learning experience for Moses. Because when God says that he'll give them a month's worth of food. Remember, the, um, uh, some of the numbers that we looked at last time. The food that was necessary to feed these people for just a day was 1,500 tons of food daily. So a month would be 30 times 1,500 tons. What is that, 45,000 tons of food of, of quail? Where would that many come from Moses even says so he says, wait a minute if you're going to feed Of course, he doesn't know he's talking about quail at that point, but he says Lord, if you're going to feed these people meat for for a month that much food Are we going to have to kill all the livestock? Are you going to bring all the fish from the sea? I'm guessing that that's just kind of a a Rhetorical sarcastic type thing I mean, I guess god could brought the fish from the sea. He could have had the fish walk from the sea But Moses is baffled. He says, where are you going to get this kind of food? And God said, you watch and see if what I said doesn't come to pass. Moses never questions again after that. That's the last time Moses ever says anything to God about, now what? You're going to do what? Everything else from this point is Moses standing straight and doing what God told him to do with one exception. Now, you know the rest of the story. Go over to chapter 13. Israel rebels. God tells them that they'll be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because that's what they said. That's what they said they'd rather do is die in the wilderness than go in the promised land. So God says, okay, not too late for that. We can make that happen. The children of Israel know. It's been told them by Moses. This is the result of your unbelief. Their hopes, their goals... Are now to die in the wilderness. Now in chapter 16. It brings us to a a real real serious situation. Up to this point. Nearly every miracle has been regarding provision. There's been one that we looked at. In the defeat of the Amalekites. The Malachite uh, armies. That had to do with protection. But things change. Once Israel rebels. The miracles change. There are different kinds of miracles. The manna still happens every day. Wherever they go. This is not a location miracle. The manna shows up wherever they. God takes them from place to place. And so forth. But in Numbers chapter 16. There's a real real important story. That shows God's power. Regarding. uh, uh, Regarding Moses. And the leaders that he puts in place. That's a type of the church. Let's start in verse 1. Now Korah the son of somebody. The son of Kohath. The son of Levi. And Dathan and Abram the sons of uh, Eliab on the son of uh, whatever, verse (laughs) 2. Do we really care? Korah. And they rose up before Moses, and with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. These are people that are respected, 250 of them with Korah. And they gathered themselves against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, wherefore then lift you yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Now remember we just read, and here's the reason that we read in chapter 16, or, or what was it, chapter uh, uh, chapter 11, where the 70 elders, Moses is complaining about the burden that he has with the people, and so God says get 70, and he takes the spirit, part of the spirit that's on Moses' And puts it on the 70 elders. They start prophesying. Joshua is upset because two of them are prophesying out in the camp. And not in the tabernacle. Moses says I wish everybody prophesied. I wish everybody was operating under the direction of the Lord. That's the way I'd rather have it. That's the attitude and the character that Moses has. Now when Moses hears Korah. And these 250 that are backing him up. Say you're trying to be too much for the people. You're trying to take too much upon you. Who are you to talk for God only? Everybody in the congregation should be able to speak for God on their own. Moses falls on his face because he knows what they don't know. Now what's interesting about this, let me, let me start this right up front. When you rebel against God in one area, it becomes a whole lot easier to rebel against him in another area. These people have just rebelled against going into the promised land, just denied the truth of the word. Korah and all these 250 princes are, are among them among the congregation that lifted up their voice and cried and say, why did God bring us out here to die in the wilderness? They're part of the reason that they are going to die in the wilderness. And Moses falls on his face. Because now they're willing to take the rebellion against or further and apply it to their positions. Now the only thing Korah and these guys want is to be more well-respected or more have a greater position with the people, however we want to say it. But it's, it's all about politics. It's all about ego. It's all about how they're seen by the people. And so Moses falls on his face, verse 4, and he spake unto Korah and unto his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he has chosen, and he will cause to come near unto him. This do take you censers, Korah and his company, and put fire therein. And put incense in them before the Lord. Tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord does choose. He shall be holy. You take too much upon you. You sons of Levi. Now let me. Um, uh, well let me keep reading a little bit. And then I'll, then I'll back up and, and make some comments. Verse 8. And Moses said unto Korah. Here I pray you. You sons of Levi. Now the Levites were the priests. They are the ones responsible for the the services of the tabernacle in the wilderness and and that kind of stuff that God gave them to build. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? Do you not realize the place God has already given you? That's what he's asking them. And he has brought thee near to him and to thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with him. And seek ye the priesthood also? Do you not realize that you already have an important place? Now you want a place that hasn't been given to you? Now that's the real issue. The real issue is that they want something that has not been given to them. Now I'm going to back up a little bit and read something to you. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. But in in Numbers chapter 12, just before the children of Israel send the 12 spies in. Moses sends the 12 spies in uh, before they rebel. Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, have their little thing. And in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. The word meek here means humble. It means teachable. Stop and think about this for a minute. This verse fascinates me. Who wrote Numbers 12, verse 3? Moses did. Is Moses writing this saying, look at me, I'm really something. Boy, look how humble I am. No. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are different than any of the other books of of Scripture. They're all inspired by God. But the first five books of of, of, uh, Scripture, the books of Moses, the five books of Moses, are dictated by God word by word. This is not Moses sitting down making a record of stuff. This is God saying, Moses, write this. In the same way that God wrote the Ten Commandments in the stone. He's telling Moses word for word what to write. Jewish scholars know this. Historians know this. Everybody recognizes that there is something different about the first five books of of the Bible, the books of Moses. They hold a different place in uh, Jewish Jewish orthodoxy than the other books of the Scripture, the prophets, the law and uh, and the prophets and so forth. Everybody recognizes it. Einstein and some other real, real brilliant people saw that there was something unique about the the structure of these things. Like, for example, the book of John. John's a common guy. He writes things in a common way. You go to Luke. Luke was a more educated guy. So the structure, the sentence structure and the the language, there's a difference between those. They're saying the same thing. They're saying the same truth. They're speaking the same uh, subjects in many cases. But there's a difference based on the way that they write. You write differently than I write. It's just a function of our personality Who we are comes out. But the first five books of the Bible are not like anything else. When computers, when the advent of computers came along, they recognized what others, Einstein and others, had surmised, and that is that there was a mathematical equation to them. Computer technology has proven that. Now, the Jewish orthodoxy, all the the rabbis has been known, or at least claimed, from the beginning... Of these books having been discovered and recorded that God gave these words to Moses to write. So God is telling Moses write this about yourself. Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Moses would have to be pretty meek just to write it. It's not him saying it about himself it's God saying it about him. So let me pick up the story again in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, "'Come out, you three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation.' And they three came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth, and he said, "'Hear now my words.' If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. In other words, you don't decide your prophets, I do. And it comes through serpent, supernatural visitation and communication. Verse 7 My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, openly. And not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. And the cloud departed from them from off the tabernacle. And behold Miriam became leprous white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam and behold she was leprous. Now, the Bible tells us that Moses intervened and said, Lord, you know, take this away. Don't let this be so. And the Lord spoke to him and said, if she had just done something that was uh, contrary to the law and just touched an unclean body or something, acted in an unclean way, she'd be separated from the camp for a, a week. So she stayed leprous for a week, and after that, she was healed. One of the things that God said to Abraham as a part of the Old Testament covenant. It's not the same for today. But in the Old Covenant, he said, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. That was a promise for Israel. A lot of people think that same promise is for Israel today, and and it's not. There's only one covenant that God has made, and that's the covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that covenant is now available to people, not because they're born of the nation of Israel, but because they make Jesus the Lord of their lives. So the promises are different for Israel. Now some people get upset because they say things like this. Israel doesn't have a covenant with God. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan for them. God's got a great plan for them. He's going to deliver them for the sake. He said for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to deliver them. But there's still only one way to God and that's through Jesus. See if if the same covenant that God had with Abraham belonged to Israel today. Then Jesus wouldn't be the only way to God. All you'd have to do is be a natural descendant of Abraham, you'd be in. But that was the whole thing that Jesus told the Jews when they rejected him. You're rejecting God's anointed. You're rejecting the one that God sent. So in Abraham's day, it was whoever stood against Abraham made God their enemy. The same thing was true for Israel when they went into the Promised Land. The same thing's true for Israel at this point. But it goes even further than that. It goes even further than just protection for the children of God or the, the, the covenant partners with God. Let me use it that term because nobody was a child of God. So it goes further than just protection for the covenant partners with God. It goes for protection from the covenant partners with God when they went against the people that God has anointed. Now we see protection... Not just for Israel, we see protection for the ones that God sets in place. And remember, this is all a type of the church. In other words, what this means for us is that God will protect the church from the church. All right, back to Numbers chapter 16. Moses has told Korah, bring censors out tomorrow and God will show who's who. Uh, I don't want to read the whole chapter. I'm running out of time. Let me. um, Let's pick up in verse 18. Numbers chapter 16 verse 18. And they took every man his censer. And put fire in them. And laid incense thereon. And stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. With Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Now it's not just Korah and the 250. He's gotten everybody overnight. He's gotten everybody on his side. He comes with the whole group. The millions of them. And it's everybody against Moses and Aaron. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, verse 20, saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. The word consume means to end them, that I might end them in a moment of time. And they fell upon their faces. Moses and Aaron fall upon their faces trying to save the people that are, that are standing against them. They fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? In other words, don't destroy everybody because of the sin of Korah, and the ones he's uh, talked into and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram.' We didn't read it, but Dathan and Abiram wouldn't even come up to be in, uh, to stand with the others to see what was going to happen the next day. They said, Moses, you brought us out into the wilderness. You think it's a small thing to bring us out here to be killed and die in the wilderness, and now you want to make yourself a king or a prince over us. He said, We're not blind to what you're doing. And so they wouldn't even come up. So now God identifies Korah and these other two that wouldn't, that wouldn't come to the same place. Uh, so Moses, verse 25, Moses rose up and went into Dathan and Aram, Abram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got up and they moved away. I don't want to read the whole thing. Let's see. Let's um, see. So anyway, anyway, he separates the evildoers and the 250 princes, these three men and the 250 from, from everybody else. And, uh, of course, the, their families stay with them. Their families are, are standing with them there, uh, in their houses, their tents, and so forth. Verse 28, Moses said, Hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. Notice Moses is saying this. It's not God saying, Here's what I'm going to do. It's Moses saying it. In other words, Moses is doing the same thing as he did with Amalek. He's learned, this is up to me. Hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own hand. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, And all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then shall you understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them. And the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah and their goods. They and all that appertained unto them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were around about them fled at the cry of them. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. That's when the Lord tells Moses, now get, get a censer and make a sacrifice in the, the, from the coals of this fire. And, and protect the people in, in that way. And he does. Now, I don't want to be casual about this. But I don't know any other way to say it for you to see it. This this is what a church split looks like to God. Church splits always start from the same thing. And that is somebody wants a different place than what they've got. Every church split you've ever been involved in, every church you've ever known that split has always been, it's always coming down to the same thing. Somebody wants a different place than what they've got. And usually it's somebody that's already got a place. Just like Korah and and the others, the sons of Levites. They had a place and they didn't consider the place that they had to be worthwhile or worth um, something special. It wasn't what they wanted. And so they wanted a different place. Every church split that you've ever known of has always started the same way. I don't care if the pastor got into sin with the secretary. I don't care what the situation was. It still comes down to somebody else stepping up saying, I want a different place. Every time. Every time. church government matters to God I know it doesn't matter to the church and so many times churches think that the, it's just about the pastor and he's a one man show and he's ruling everything and he's a dictator and without doubt there are a lot of narciss- narcissistic pastors Moses wasn't one of them Moses said if it was up to me everybody prophesy everybody talked to God face to face but that wasn't good enough for the people oh no we've got to set ourselves up can I ask you a question how in the world did Korah and whoever else was the, was, were the influencers how did they top these 3 million people into following them I can only think of one thing that might have had any influence and that is we know that if we stick with Moses we're all going to die in the wilderness well that's going to happen whether you're with Moses or not Sticking with Moses just means you've got longer in the wilderness before you die. As was proved by Korah and his group. But how were they able to influence people? Folks, Jesus used the example of people being like sheep and and pastors being like shepherds. Sheep will follow anything. If they don't know the word. That's why the most important thing for you is to know the word for yourself so that you can know who's right and who's wrong about what they're doing. Maybe not even what they're saying, but the attitude of the spirit behind it. I, honest to goodness, folks, uh, we've taken criticism a lot for, for people that we wouldn't have into the church. And people will come up, I don't get this much anymore, but it used to be that people would say, well, why don't you have this one? We In the church I used to go to, we'd have this guest speaker in. And they're, they're well-known, why don't you have them in? And it, many times it has nothing to do with what they would teach. I would rather have somebody with the right spirit teach the wrong thing than have somebody teach the right thing with the wrong spirit. Because I can fix the wrong teaching. Get the wrong spirit in a church, it'll take a long time to get rid of that. Paul talked about speaking the truth in love. He talked about that being the mark of spiritual maturity is speaking the truth in love. One of the things that... um, Well, let me just give you an example of this. I can't stand. uh, That may be a little harsh. (laughs) My words count, so I want to make sure I say things the right way. I have a hard time with Let me back it up and say it this way. I have a hard time with people teaching prosperity that aren't pastors. Because pastors will teach prosperity from a standpoint, or at least they have the opportunity to teach prosperity from a standpoint of caring about the people that they're teaching. You know the difference between a teacher and a pastor? Sometimes there are pastors and teachers. It's a combination. But do you know the difference between a teacher and a pastor? A teacher cares about his message. The pastor cares about the people that hear the message. Thank God for teachers in the church. We need teachers in the church, but we need teachers with the right heart. Because if they're just trying to make a message, and a lot of times people have done this with prosperity, because you can go into a church, especially a church that's well grounded, you can go into a church and preach prosperity and they'll all give to you. And we've seen this so many times. We've seen so much of people teaching prosperity and it's all about you giving in an offering. Folks, prosperity is not just about you giving in an offering, it's about what you believe, it's about what you speak. It's about the way you conduct yourself. It's about obedience uh, with finances. It's about being good stewards. There's a lot more than just giving and an offering that's involved in prosperity. A lot more. Well, how many teachers have an opportunity to go into a church and take the time that's necessary to teach the whole message? I don't know of anybody. I'm not going to have somebody come in and teach that long in our church. But I'm here all the time. I can do it either through a series or I can do it a little bit here and there. Throw in little bits as a part of other things. Doesn't mean you get it, but at least you have an opportunity to. This is what a church split looks like to God. The next thing that happens is Numbers chapter 17 is still part of the same story. Because God is proving whose on, uh, who's, uh, uh, chosen ones. He has each of the tribes of Israel bring a stick. And they carve their names into the stick. And the next morning God said that I will show whose stick. Uh, who the, the, the person that I have chosen by the, the stick that represents them. And it tells us in Numbers chapter 17 that Aaron's stick butted. That's a, it's a staff. It's a rod. It's cut off at both ends. There's no living to it. There's no life to it. But it budded. It it, it, uh, it uh, brought forth almond blossoms. And that was something that they kept and they put in the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And it was kept along with a jar of manna for, to, uh, as a, a symbol of God's blessings and God's miracles in the wilderness. It tells us that there are two things that should show, two things that should be in evidence... In the life and or ministry of somebody that God picks. One is miracles or the supernatural. The other is fruitfulness. That's what these two things represent. Notice it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He said you men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Whom God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves know. Paul said something similar about himself 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 he said truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds remember the story in Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira what was that about that's God stopping the church from splitting when it was young Ananias and Sapphira conspired to lie to Peter and the leaders of the church about the land that they sold they didn't have to give any of it to the church But Barnabas apparently had done that and everybody thought that Barnabas was great. So they're trying to gain a position or gain a name for themselves among the people. Same things as Korah is doing in Numbers 16. And so Peter catches them by the Holy Ghost. He says, why have you conspired to lie to the Holy Ghost? Ananias falls dead in church. Sapphira shows up three hours later and falls dead in church too. They had long services. Don't complain about how long we go. Now, folks, uh, you may have heard me say this before. But without a doubt, lying to the Holy Ghost doesn't call people to fall dead instantly today. If that were the case, you'd have to build churches uh, to share buildings with funeral homes. You'd have people falling dead every week. Thankfully, that's not the way that works. That would cut down on a lot of people wanting to be in the ministry, I'm sure. Probably cut down on church attendance a a great deal, too. But the point is this, God was doing something spectacular, something miraculous, something at at the very least supernatural in Acts chapter 5 to keep the church from splitting, to keep the devil from being able to divide the church in its early stages. Now the same thing might happen today, the same thing has happened numerous times since that time and there was no anybody falling dead in church in the same way. It wasn't even the action itself. It was God protecting the church. And that's what this miracle in Numbers 16 is a type of. It's a type of God protecting his church. And approving of the people that he chooses. Not only protecting him from outside forces. But from inside forces. Let me finish this up real quick. Numbers chapter 20. Here's the one place where Moses messes up. Oh by the way. I didn't, I didn't finish the story. But in Numbers chapter 16, you'd think that after Korah and the group fall into the earth and are swallowed up by the earth, that everybody would would, uh, say unto Moses, okay, now we see you're the guy. We'll follow you. We'll quit murmuring against you. The Bible says the very next morning, the people complained because of all the people that died. Next morning. Numbers chapter 20, children of Israel are murmuring against Moses again. This is kind of a broken record now. They're in a place in the wilderness where there's no water. And so they, the glory of the Lord appears unto Moses. This is Numbers chapter 20 beginning in verse 7. The Lord spake unto Moses saying, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly to gather thou and Aaron thy brother and speak ye unto the rock. The first time they were there, water came from the rock it was because Moses hit the rock. That was a type of Jesus on the cross, smitten of God and afflicted. But now the second time, the rock is not supposed to be struck or smitten. The rock is supposed to be spoken to. Now this is a clear type. First time of Jesus being smitten of God on the cross. Paying the price for sin. The second time the blessing of water. Which is a type of the Holy Ghost. The type of the life of God. Water being realized through the spoken word. The operation of faith in other words. For the believer. In order for you to partake of the promised land blessings. The promised land blessing of healing for example. For example. Jesus doesn't have to go under the cross. doesn't have to take another stripe upon his back. You receive that blessing along with every other blessing by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. That's what this is a type of. But Moses messes it up. God says, speak to the rock and it will come forth. But Moses gets up, takes the rod uh, from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron, verse 10, gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said, hear now, you rebels. These people have finally gotten to Moses. If this had been one of those times where God said, Moses, stand back and let me kill these people, Moses probably would have said, Have at it. Because he's mad at them. He said, Hear you now, these rebels. Now, notice what he's put up with. He's brought them out of Egypt. They murmured against him the whole way. He brought them to the Red Sea. They were murmuring. God delivers them to the Red Sea. He goes up into the mountain to get the Ten, uh, Ten Commandments. They come down and they've committed adultery and and all kinds of things, golden calf that they're worshiping and so forth. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle, delivered them time after time after time, and the same result occurs no matter what he does, no matter what God does, no matter how God shows himself strong on their behalf. The people murmur against him and say, Why have you done this? He's trying to do something to help them, something to benefit them. He's doing it at the instruction of God, and they complain, Why have you done this, Moses? So finally, he's had it. He's fed up. He said, hear you now, you rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod, he smote the rock twice. Twice means the second time. Doesn't mean he hit it twice. It means he hit the rock the second time where God told him to speak to it. And the water came out abundantly. Wasn't lightning from heaven and God saying, "Nope, messed up, Moses. Back up, do it right. The water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron because you believe me not. Notice how, how, how uh, important believing God is. I mean you'd think Moses with all the stuff that he's done and with all the, the things that he's been faithful in you'd think God give him one mistake. He said Moses because you didn't believe me. To sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore shall you not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. In other words this cost Moses the promised land. What cost Moses the promised land? The same thing that cost you and me the promised land. And that is when we fail to recognize that the promised land blessings. Are received through the words of our mouth. God didn't make an exception for Moses. I don't know about you but I'd been fine with him if he had. But this is that serious. Because it's an eternal law. God deals with you according to the words that you speak. Moses' action of hitting the rock. When he was supposed to say, speak to it instead. This action cost him the promised land blessing. That's why the, the, um, the law of faith for us. Is told us so clearly in Mark 11.23. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Not whosoever shall hit the mountain. Whosoever shall pray that Jesus will come back to the cross. And do a little bit more work. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith. Shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Last one real quick. Numbers chapter 21. This is the last of the wilderness miracles. One more that Moses does. In the sight of the people. And that's the type of Jesus making the brass serpent on the pole. The Bible says, and again in, in Deuteronomy when, Numbers, in, uh, Deuteronomy when uh, Moses is making his farewell speech to the people. He reminds them how God had brought them through the land that was filled with fiery serpents. The King James translation says that the people murmured and so God sent fiery serpents. But the reality is the snakes were already in the land that they came through. The miracle was that this is the only time that there's any record of the snakes getting through to the people. But the murmuring of the people was sufficient to allow the the judgment of God or the protection of God to be lifted. And the judgment of God to come upon them. And many people died because of these poisonous snakes. So Moses cries out unto the Lord and the Lord says, make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. This is the thing that Jesus said is a type of himself. In John chapter 13, I'm sorry, John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Jesus said as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So also must the son of man be lifted up from the earth. So also must the son of man be lifted up on the earth. So Jesus says says himself. Talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says that was a type or a sign. Talking about me. Well what happened with the serpent of brass. In the wilderness. Moses lifted up the serpent of brass. And he gave instruction to the people. at uh, At the direction of God. Whosoever looketh upon it shall live let me skip over to chapter 30 um chapter 21 excuse me in verse 8 the lord said unto moses make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live when he looketh upon it shall live in other words it's the beholding of the cross And all that Jesus did for us that brought two things for these people. Number one, verse 7 says the, the people recognized before Moses. They came to Moses and said, we have sinned. So what do they need? They need forgiveness from their sins. The second thing they need is healing from the snake bite. And the same remedy is available for both things in the same manner. God says to Moses, it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that a serpent had bitten, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. That which Jesus said is a type of himself provided two things for Israel. And that was forgiveness and healing. Just as the Bible says Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. It's talking about the same work of crucifixion, the same work on the cross, the same redemptive work by Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead provided not only salvation for the inner man, the spirit of man, but also healing for the physical body. And that's the last of the wilderness miracles. The last one. I think it's instructive for us that that's the last one. Because remember, everything about the wilderness miracles were designed for two things. Number one, so that the people would believe God and his word. Second, that they'd be ready for war, prepared for war. The next thing that happens is Joshua and the miracles of the conquering of the promised land, the conquest miracles. The things that God does to cause them to enter into the promised land. But this is the last one, the most specific and obvious type by Jesus' own words that refers to him and represents him and his sacrifice. What do you think we have a record of these miracles for? Is it supposed to have a different effect in us than it was supposed to happen for them? Same one. So that you believe God and His Word and so that you be ready for war. Knowing that God will do anything and everything. I like to see Moses' progression here. Moses messed up in Numbers chapter, uh, what was it, 20, where he struck the rock. He messed up that one time. But Moses goes to the, from the place of standing before God in the burning bush and saying, I can't do this, I can't speak, the people won't believe me, I, I'm, I'm not worthy of this, to being the person that is handling the power of God, not even talking to God about how are we going to do this. He's come to the place where if God hasn't already told him, he decides for himself. That's the type of the New Testament believer. That's the type of the priests and the kings that we've been made to get today. Through the relationship that Jesus has made a way for us to have. Over and over again in in, uh, uh, John's gospel. John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus said to the the disciples and therefore said to us. If you call for or ask for anything in my name, I'll do it. Why? Because you're in Christ. You are in the name of Jesus. Therefore you speak and I'll make it good. You speak. You speak. And I'll perform it. You call for it. And I'll do the miraculous. All these things are types and shadows of that. Which Jesus has already fulfilled. Folks it already belongs to you. You don't have to do anything to get it. It already belongs to you. Let's pray. Father thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you Father for the miracle working power. That lives and abides within us. We thank you Lord. That because we're in Christ. That name which was. Identified and typified, illustrated by Moses' rod. That name is ours. It provides provision for us even more than it provided for Israel. It provides protection for us even more than it provided for Israel. Thank you, Father, that nothing is impossible with you and nothing is impossible to them that believe. Thank you, Father, for the miraculous the greater one, the miracle working one dwells in us. Father, you know that there are people here today that need miracles. They may need financial miracles. They may need healing miracles. They may need family miracles. Thank you, Father, that they can and will be done by simple faith in your word and who you are And the confession of our mouths. Thank you Father. That the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Has made us free. Not going to make us free. But has made us free. From the law of sin and death. Thank you Father. That when we believe in our hearts. And speak with our mouths. That which we believe for and speak. Always come to pass. In Jesus precious name. In Jesus precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Hallelujah. Folks, if I could encourage you to do anything, it would be to be a doer of the word. I think sometimes it slips by us because it's so simple. I think sometimes we hear the word and we say, yeah, that's right. These things belong to us. But we don't take the time to say, wait a minute, here's what the Bible says about me. So here's what I say about myself. Here's what the Bible says about my family. So here's what I speak about my family. Here's what the Bible says about my healing. So here's what I say about my healing. It takes active faith. But active faith is always rewarded. Active faith is always rewarded. The devil can't stop active faith from receiving the promise. So I want to ask you. I want to ask you very simply. When you see and read and hear about these miracles that God did in the Old Testament. What does that do for you? If it's not doing something for you If you don't do something because of it Then you're not acting on the word If you don't take these things Something Out of what we've seen and heard And read in the word today If you don't take something out of that And begin to actively confess it You're not being a doer Every time we hear the word of God It ought to make a change in some manner Of what we believe or what we speak Even if it adds to what we've already been believing and speaking, it ought to be that way every time. What does it matter to you that God is a miracle working God? It's supposed to matter somehow, it's supposed to have some effect on you. What effect does it have? Begin to confess for miracles, begin to confess for the miracle working power of God, begin to speak those things that the Word of God says. And watch what God does. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.